people tend to assume that Arthur would have been less ruthless than Henry VIII. There's nothing really to suggest that that's true. The Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Welcome to the show. In today's episode, my co-host, Heather Darcy, had the opportunity to delve into the life of Arthur Tudor, one of the most intriguing figures from Tudor history. Arthur's story is filled with many what-if scenarios, and the debate over his marriage being consummated with Catherine of Aragon has fascinated historians for centuries. Join Heather and Gareth Streeter as they explore Arthur's life, his marriage to Catherine, and the lasting impact he had on the Tudor dynasty. Hello and welcome to Tudor's Dynasty podcast. This is your host, Heather Darcy, one of the wonderful co-hosts. You might know me from my book, Anna, Duchess of Cleves, The King's Beloved Sister, and my forthcoming book, Children of the House of Cleves, Anna and Her Siblings, which will be out in the UK in June of this year and in the US in September of this year. And I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Gareth Streeter. Welcome. How are you? I'm very well, Heather. It's fantastic to be here. Really great to, to to put a face to the name, so to speak, of having seen you on social media for some time. I, as you know, am more of a Tudor-adjacent historian, so I'm not terribly familiar with Arthur beyond, unfortunately, him being Catherine of Aragon's first husband. Could you just give us a general overview of his life? Of course. It's it's fantastic to be here and um, I hope I hope I give Arthur justice by giving a quick overview of his life or do him justice I should say. So Arthur was the eldest son of Henry VII, Henry Tudor and Elizabeth of York. Uh, Henry had won uh, the crown of England just a year before Arthur's birth at the Battle of Bosworth. He'd effectively, he, he'd really got the support he needed to win that battle by agreeing, pledging to marry Elizabeth of York, who most people believed was the real heiress to the throne, the throne which had been usurped by uh, Richard III as, as supporters of Elizabeth of York and Henry Tudor would have seen it. They get married um, at the end or the very beginning of 1486. And just eight months later, Arthur comes along, probably, probably born a little bit premature. He is born at Winchester, which was believed then to be the seat uh, the, of the ancient city of Camelot. And it's very clear that with this location, this birth at Winchester at Camelot, and with the name of Arthur, Henry VII was trying to nod toward a second Arthurian era and show that the Tudors would be restoring the true line of the ancient British kings of whom they claimed they were descended. So Arthur is born with this huge expectation over him. He spent his early years probably at Farnham Castle, halfway between Winchester and London, where he was given a degree of privacy for the first few years. Aged three years old, he's brought out in front of the whole court and declared Prince of Wales. Uh, and for the first time, He's seen by people and he becomes from that point on, um, albeit at a fairly nominal level, a part of the government and a part of the inner workings of Tudor England. He briefly, at just um, six years old, is left to rule England as his father goes off to fight the French. And having done a good job of whatever exactly it was he was meant to do, then he's then dispatched when his dad gets back 
to the border of Wales, to Ludlow Castle, to be the figurehead, and probably as he gets older, increasingly a real head of a regional government. Arthur is perhaps most famous for his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, the great Spanish princess, as she's become known through um, popular fiction. Um, and he had been betrothed to her for most of his life, although it wasn't it was on and off, as international treaties and international marriages could sometimes be. She finally comes to England uh, in 1501. They marry, and just five years later, Arthur is dead, and history changes in that moment. You wrote a book on Arthur Tudor, and I am intrigued. Can you tell me why you chose Arthur Tudor? Arthur, th there's probably there's probably two main reasons. One might sound quite dry and the other one is, is perhaps a little bit more more human. So starting with the dry or drier, it's not dry to me and perhaps it won't be dry to, to all the listeners either, but uh, like so many and probably like everybody listening to this podcast, I've been obsessed with the Tudors for as long as I can remember. And most people in my experience who were really into the Tudors are fascinated by the reign of Henry VIII and by the reign of Elizabeth I. Now, I am as well, but I've always been the most intrigued and the most fascinated by the reign of the first Tudor king, uh, Henry VII, who, um, as many listeners know, was the, the victor of that dynastic conflict which we today call the Wars of the Roses, who managed to, against all the odds, take, take the crown of England and won it in battle at Bosworth Field in 1485, and then went on to become a, a controversial but a successful king um, that claims to bring stability to England. And there's there's quite a lot of, of good reasons to, to validate that claim objectively as well. So I, I always knew that when I came to start writing books about history, I would probably want to focus on that era. And Arthur is an intrinsic piece of Henry VII's reign, not just because he was the heir, he was his, his father's eldest son and heir to the throne. He was born very quickly, within a, well, just a, a year after Henry VII took the throne. And partly he was significant because he, he, he represented the fact that she just had a future. Um, and as, as listeners will know, a king with a future was far more interesting and far more likely to be able to affect a decent reign if, if he had that future. But actually, Arthur was more than that as well, the style of Henry VII's government, which is something that's always fascinated me, depended on there being a, a, a series of, of regional power bases, effectively. And Arthur, his son and heir, um, was sent, as soon as really he was old enough to feasibly do it, to head one of those regional power bases. So actually, even in his own lifetime, he played a crucial role in stabilising uh, the Tudor throne. And then just on a more human level as well, one of the things, I mean, I, I like, again, most people listening to this have read all those wonderful books about the six wives of Henry VIII, um, Alison Weir, David Starkey, Antonia Fraser, those really wonderful books often hooked us in to the Tudor era in the first place. And I was very conscious that all of those sorts of books, which, which are excellent, do tend to start by saying something along the lines of, there was this chap called Arthur, he was Henry VIII's older brother. He died. Um, so his brother married his wife. Then let's go and talk about how that marriage didn't quite work out. And then someone called Anne Boleyn comes along and there's a split with Rome. And let's spend lots of time talking about that. And I've always thought, hold on a minute. Can we just press pause <laughs> on those first couple of lines? Because this, this boy who just dies in the first couple of lines of every Tudor book out there must have a story 
And the more I delved into it and started thinking about what this book could look like, I realised just how impressive a story it was. This was a boy who was um, born as not just the heir to England, but as the child of two dynasties. He witnessed feuds, he survived rebellions, and he became the focal point of a major international alliance. So the line I've used frequently throughout the book, which I think is important, is Arthur Tudor was not just a prince who died. He was a boy who really lived. And I hope that this book is about helping to rediscover his story and his life just for the sake of his story and of his life. Thank you so much for that passionate introduction to Arthur. And I wanted to ask you, how did you start researching him? Well, Arthur's a really interesting character in terms of the sources and as far as they're concerned, because you have whole days of Arthur's life which are chronicled in absolute detail, in vivid detail. So the day that he was created Prince of Wales, when he was just three years old, we know literally um, huge amounts about his, his movements during that day. Um, the day that he got married, of course, we know huge amounts about that day and the days leading up to it. Um, and that means that, and, and, and I should have started, of course, with his christening, which was a huge, massive event, a massive showcase for, for, for the fledgling uh, Tudor regime. And those days give you the ability to talk quite vividly about some of what was going on in Arthur's life. In contrast, there are whole years of his life where we don't even know where he lived. And it's actually guesswork to try and work out where in the country he was and who the people around him are. And then you get hints of Arthur. Arthur is, uh, Arthur is quite... Um, adjacent, I suppose, in some of the sources. So a payment might be made to one of Arthur's servants, or one of Arthur's servants might be commissioned to do something, or Arthur's name may be attached to um, a, a record of justice that's being dispensed on his behalf in, in or around Wales and, and, and on the border, but we don't know how involved with it Arthur was. So you've got to do a lot of sussing out the real, um, the, the real trajectory of Arthur's lifestyle and so, and so almost see him in the cracks. And it was, a, it was a joy to really do that and to look at that and try and bring him out of the cracks and stitch together his life. And I suppose the third component is there are whole things going on in the reign of Henry VII. This is the king who faces two serious um, pretenders trying to get his throne, particularly in, in the 1490s. And Arthur, as far as the sources say, isn't really involved in that. We don't know what Arthur uh, thought about that, what Arthur made to any of it. However, there is no possible way that at this stage when Arthur's old enough to understand it, that it isn't going to be something that was preoccupying Arthur's thoughts. So I gave myself license in the book to look at some of the events in Henry VII's reign from the perspective of what Arthur may have made of them, although we won't know for a fact what his feelings are. What can you tell us about Arthur's education? Arthur's education was what we would call a world-class education. It was the it was the best of the best. Uh, if we if we look at the years when Arthur's education would have got going in style, which was the early fourteen um, nineties, we're we're talking about the the earliest days of the Renaissance Renaissance humanism. I say earliest. Obviously, there is some dispute as to when when these days started. Um, but we're talking about uh, about a, a burgeoning golden era of knowledge and a rediscovery of a past that had been lost for so long. And Arthur's father, Henry VII, was a huge subscriber to the new learning, to, to humanism. 
as um, as 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 they called it at the time. And he um, had obviously, well, I say obviously, many many people will know that Henry the Seventh had actually spent much of his life on continental Europe, um, in parts of what we would what we would consider today to be France, although much of it then was considered Brittany. Um, and he had encountered some great uh, wise men and he brought some of them across to England with him after his victory. And it was very much in that school of thought that Arthur was raised in, in, the, redis in the recently rediscovered um, uh, traditions of, of, of the great political rhetorics um, of, of ancient Greece that Arthur was educated in. And of course, he was also uh, deeply um, stooped in Christian scripture, uh, the teachings of St. Augustine. And by all accounts, he, he totally thrived under this uh, robust uh, curriculum. We have to be a little bit careful uh, because the man who was primarily responsible for Arthur's education um, uh, Bernard Andre, uh, in the fourteen in, in the late from certainly from the late mid to late fourteen nineties onwards, he after Arthur's death uh, writes an account of Henry the Seventh's reign, where he spends quite a little bit of time waxing lyrical about all that Arthur did and all that Arthur studied, and he has this impressive list of texts that he he talked Arthur through. But of course, uh, Andre is partly trying to write about how wonderful Arthur was. But he's also trying to write about how wonderful Andre was because he wants to show how he got he got in touch with um, or he had access to the, the most cutting edge, innovative, scholarly things that there were around. So we have to take it all with a little bit of a pinch of salt. But all the evidence we have suggests that Arthur had the most sophisticated education on offer and that he did very well uh, as a student of it. And now a word from our sponsor. I have a two part question. Did he receive a lot of physical education or martial education? And if so, how did he do with that? We, we know an awful lot. We know an awful lot less about his physical education than we do his, if you like, his academic education or scholarly education, which in and of itself may be telling, but but it, it, it also might not be. He would have been um, exercising uh, recreationally from as soon as he was old enough to do that. As many listeners will know, if you were a, a man of the upper classes, none of your life uh, was free from the preparations of the role that you would one day be, uh, the, the knightly role that you would one day be expected to carry out. And for Arthur, none of his life was divorced from the, from the role of king that he would one day be expected to play. And, and kingship in this era, it probably had already changed more than the Tudors understood it to be. But as far as anyone understood it, kingship was a, mili a military role. Henry VII himself had um, won the crown in battle and he'd had to defend it in battle within in two years of taking it. And he'd be called upon to, to do so again. So it was a military role. Uh, so Arthur would have had quite robust athletic training from a young age. Uh, it's interesting that in the accounts of Arthur's creation as Prince of Wales when he was dubbed a Knight of the Bath the same oh, or just the day before. He is depicted at three years of age as riding um, through the ceremony on horseback. Now, you and I might look at that source and wonder whether that's entirely credible. Um, was someone at least leading him on horse or was someone else on horse with him? Was it probably a pony rather than a horse? We don't know. But there was obviously some degree of, of Arthur riding and, and being 
athletically active at three years of age. And if that trajectory continued, as it probably did, we know he had a coat of arms. There's every reason to think um, that Arthur would have been trained and in, in schooled in the knightly ways as much as any other young man would have been. What we don't have is any record of Arthur being involved directly in putting down rebellions or um, in fighting on any of his father's campaigns. He's probably too young, um, but it's also possible that by the time he was an adolescent, his mental prowess had far outstripped his athletic prowess, although we're never going to know that for a fact. And he was born in 1486, right? He was, yes, he was born in, in 1486. He was almost certainly a few weeks premature, um, which may have raised some question marks over his early, early health. And it's possible that there's always been different theories about Arthur's health. Um, the Victorians very much imagined him as a sickly child. Um, there's not a great deal of evidence for that. And there's there's quite a lot of evidence to the contrary. But in his later years, um, from about the turn of the century, when Arthur's really approaching adolescence and his teenage years, there are some indications of, of a fragility or an underdevelopment. We don't know what. And whether we can connect any of that to the fact that his, his, his mental or intellectual achievements survive in memory and any physical ones don't it, it is a guess, but it, it's probably not an outrageous guess. And I know you said that sometimes Arthur just virtually disappears from the record for a few years, but can you give us a rough idea where he might have lived when he was, let's say, up until about the turn of the century? Yes, we know we know a fair bit about that. I mean, so when he was born, he was uh, he was born in Winchester, I should say, which is um, not which is a town um, getting in between uh, London and the south coast of England. Huge, huge significance to Winchester because Winchester in part had been the closest that Anglo-Saxon England had to a capital. So particularly um, when the Norman and early Plantagenet kings were looking to reaffirm their legitimacy in, in the eyes of the, the native English, they often conducted big events such as coronations at Winchester. Um, but more significantly than that, by the time that Arthur was born, Winchester had become associated with where people believed that King Arthur's Camelot had once stood. Obviously today, and indeed not too long after Henry VII's own time, most people um, understand now and began to understand then the stories of, of Arthur and Camelot and the Round Table to be fictitious, but that's not what Henry VII believed. It is not what most people in England would have believed. They believed it to be based on, on real events, and Winchester was seen as uh, as as the same site that Camelot had once stood on. So Arthur being born there as the new Prince Arthur, the second King Arthur to be, um, it was very, very important that he was born in Winchester. And uh, I actually think I explore this a bit more in the book. I think it may have been a bit of a last minute decision. Um, I'll just leave people to to read the book as to, as to see why that may have been. But Arthur, I think it's something of a rush to court travel to Winchester for his birth. And thereafter, because he was premature, he'd come earlier than was expected, there were probably some concerns. I don't think there were serious concerns about his health, but there were probably some concerns that they didn't want to move him too far too quickly. But he was taken to Farnham Castle, which was um, the seat of the Bishop of Winchester. Uh, it wasn't, it's not that, it's not that far from London, it's in between uh, Winchester and London, but where he would have had access to clean air, a lot of space, but he would also have been very safe. It's a very secure 
residence. And he was there for at least the first six months of his life. We, we have a record six months later showing that he's still there. It may well have been where he lived for the first six years of his life, or he may have been moved to a nursery, particularly after his sister, Princess Margaret, was born. He may have been moved to a nursery closer, closer to the court, although he would never have actually lived in the court. And then when he was six years old, he was um, given all the lands associated with his ancestors, who were the Earls of March. And for those who are big fans of the Wars of the Roses, they will remember that it was through the, the Earls of, of March that the House of York derived its superior um, claim to the throne. Uh, Arthur received all those lands along the Welsh border and a regional government was set up um, nominally for Arthur to head uh, um, at Ludlow Castle, right along the border with Wales, to govern that area, which had notoriously in history been, been quite a tricky place to govern. We don't know for a fact that Arthur was sent to join that government and head it at six years old, but he certainly started to make appearances in the area that year. He does appear on the bench um, in nearby Herefordshire dispensing justice. Obviously, that would have fairly nominally as he was six years old and by the end of the year it's quite clear that his key household officers are in place in the region so it's likely that by the age of sort of six or seven he um, moved he moved to the border of Wales to become Prince of Wales in more than just name and to become a regional figure of authority and that's where he lived out the the rest of his life other than uh, visits to court and he lived between probably between Ludlow Castle which was probably the more official seat of business and then he lived in a manor house in a nearish town called Budley which would have been a more comfortable um, relaxing manor environment where he perhaps went for respite he perhaps went for um, for study um, and and my theory and it's only my guess really is that the younger he was he probably spent more time at more comfortable Budley going up to Ludlow when he needed to um, and as he got older he was probably more at the centre of his own government at Ludlow Castle. Around what age were marriage discussions first broached for Arthur? So the marriage discussions were broached very young, um, when Arthur is just uh, eighteen months old, in um, in in fourteen in fourteen eighty eight. That's when Spanish Henry the Seventh makes overtures to the Spanish king and queen Ferdinand and Isabella, who many people will know were the were the sort of emerging powerhouses of the continent. They respond favourably uh, to a deal with England, not because of any great diplomacy on the part of Henry VII, but precisely because an alliance with England suited their interests at that particular time. And they were lucky enough that they had enough daughters to be able to um, to be able to, if, if you like, to spare one for a second rate power like England, which is what it was at the end of the 15th, at the end of the 15th century. Um, so negotiations started then. In, uh, ambassadors were sent to inspect Arthur and have a look at him. Uh, they inspected him naked so they could take his detailed report back um, to the King Queen of Spain. And, and they found him very pleasing. A quick treaty uh, was negotiated. And as infants, Arthur was engaged to the Infanta Catherine of Aragon, as she's become so well known in English history. And this, of course, has led to so much of the narrative around how Catherine felt England, knew that England was her destiny uh, since she was old enough to remember. And actually, that's why she would have sacrificed anything and done anything to preserve her place as, as Queen of England when it all started to go wrong years later. 
that's probably a flawed narrative. The truth is, um, in 1493, the marriage was broken off. Um, Ferdinand and Isabel, uh, Isabella decided they would probably rather do uh, a deal with the French, not a marriage deal, but the French weren't happy doing any kind of deal with them while um, while one of their daughters was still engaged to, to an English prince. And it wasn't until uh, some years later in 1497 that that was finally resurrected, at which point both Arthur and Catherine are on the verge of adolescence. So for Arthur, it's, there was never a time in his life where he didn't know he was meant to marry Catherine of Aragon and that that was the aspiration for him, even when it had been called off. But for Catherine, it's slightly different. Her options probably always seemed a bit more open. Did Arthur have any type of contact with Catherine before he met her? No. they were. I mean, people often talk about how Catherine uh, came to England to marry Arthur. That's not true. They'd been married twice before <laughs> in proxy ceremonies, which, of course, Heather, you'll know all about in terms of continental alliances. But it was quite possible to marry um, without having met, where you both performed a ceremony and someone else stood in for the other part. So they were already married before Catherine came. And if the Spanish had had their way, Arthur would probably never have laid eyes on Catherine until they were literally stood at the altar together. But when Catherine did arrive in England, Henry VII absolutely put his foot down and insisted that they met her first and they were granted an audience. They didn't, the Spanish didn't really have a choice, of course, by this stage, they were in England. Um, and, and, and Arthur and Catherine met really just weeks before their ceremony. And then they didn't see each other again till to perhaps a, a couple of days before it. So they were really both of them at such a young age thrown, thrown into the dark. Um, but we, we often think how overwhelming that must be of Catherine. And of course, of course, it would have been. But for Arthur as well, it's, it, it must have been a very peculiar series of emotions where this, this, this woman, this girl, this princess, who he'd known about since he was old enough to know anything, was finally someone he was coming face to face with and told he was going to spend the rest of his life with. And the pressure that must have put on that couple is, is phenomenal. Do we have any evidence of what their first meeting was like? Oh, we do. And to be honest, it was as awkward as hell. There's, there, there's, there's quite a detailed account of it, actually. Um, a Herald account that talks all about Catherine's arrival in England and the run-up to the marriage ceremony. And the truth is, although they'd conversed with each other in perfect Latin um, for some years by, by letter, when it got to it, Catherine didn't seem to know any English. There's some debate um, as to whether she'd ever been taught any or not, but if she had, it wasn't helping her in her first few weeks in the country. Catherine couldn't speak English. Arthur couldn't speak any Spanish. They could both speak Latin, but for whatever reason, some speculate that it could have been the, the accents and the pronunciation. I think it was just teenage nerves. They really struggled to communicate when they first met. It was an awkward situation. Henry VII had just been the most embarrassing dad ever, where he basically barged in to the place that Catherine was staying. Her, her, her guardians, of course, not her parents, the, the officers looking after her said, you can't possibly, you can't possibly see the princess. She's at her rest. To which Henry VII, in a fit of anger, replies, I'll see her even if she's in bed. And of course, by, by the standards of the day, that's a pretty scandalous and outrageous thing to say. And the, the inference is clear. Uh, so there's this whole awkward situation where they have to get her ready, come out, and she's basically forced to come and meet the king. Then all of a sudden he's like, oh, and here's Arthur, come come and meet him. Uh, and it's awkward. You, you can, the, the, the awkwardness just, just rings through 
um, from from the contemporary accounts. Uh, and they luckily that they, they don't have to talk for long. Um, there's a there's a lady Arthur knew well, Lady Guildford, who'd been involved in his upbringing, who was a great linguist, and she was there to help translate some of the Spanish. When the Spanish bishop that was present had some English skills, so people helped them translate. And then luckily, music came soon. They started dancing. They don't dance with each other. Perhaps people just thought that would be far too awkward, given everything that had gone on. But this poor young couple, Catherine homesick, Arthur overwhelmed, have the most awkward meeting, and they know that in not too long at all, they're going down the aisle together. Then they're going to be sent off to run run a household and part run a kingdom together. How long after their awkward first meeting did they have their public wedding ceremony? A, a couple of weeks. So Catherine has, I should say, Catherine um, arrived in the wrong city when she arrived in England. So she was meant to come to Southampton, which um, for those that know their geography of England, Southampton's a fairly straight road up to London and a whole series of very elaborate greetings and processions have been planned. She actually, probably because of the bad weather, ended up in Plymouth, which is the city I actually live in, in, um, in England, which is um, very, very far from London. It's far now, let alone then. And so they had to rearrange all the plans. All these great ladies of the realm had to flee across the country to, to meet her and greet her. So um, effectively, she now had this rearranged procession up through the west of England and into London. Arthur and Henry intercept her on the way, which is where they basically force her into a meeting. She then carries on her procession through England. She goes um, through Kingston upon Thames, which is a very historically significant place. She goes to London, then she's greeted by a whole series of pageants, which are spectacular beyond imagination in uh, the city of London, before finally they end up at St Paul's Cathedral together, which is the most public wedding venue the 16th century had to offer. And, and they, well, I say they become man and wife, technically they already are man and wife, but now they become indisputably husband and wife under the full public glare of Tudor England. What happened after they were married? <laughs> that's a big debate that's a big well, debate let me fr let me rephrase the question did they live together immediately after they were married they did it was Henry the seventh agonized and agonized about whether or not it was appropriate to send Catherine back to Ludlow with Arthur he and, and the reason for that I mean these these sources are, are people have People have very different interpretations of these sources. For me, I think it's quite clear. The reason is, is that Henry VII is very worried about Arthur's health. And there was a belief among some in the early 16th century that too much marital activity could be very, very dangerous for young men. And of course, Catherine's own brother had died and, and people had thought that that is because he had got up to far too much in the bedroom with Margaret of Austria, who was his bride. Um, so, but they, but they were eventually sent together to Ludlow, perhaps against Henry VII's better judgment. And I believe that Arthur really pushed for it. I think Arthur was driving the fact he wanted Catherine to come back with him because I think he knew that going back to Ludlow as a prince with a princess would enable him to go to the next phase of his maturity and the next phase of his own personal government in his dominion. How long did they live together at Ludlow? About five months. Um, and I don't think it would have been a very joyous time. The weather was absolutely awful. I mean, the weather's... I'm going to sound like such a classic Brit now, but the weather's all, always awful in England. It's particularly bad in that part of the world. That season was particularly rainy. And obviously, 
Catherine has just come from Spain. So it's a real, literally a real climate shock for her. Mm. What oh, time sorry, of year, on. I'm sorry, what time of year were they married and what time of year were they living at Ludlow Castle? So toward the end of the year and they went to Ludlow Castle at Christmas time and then Arthur was dead by April. So they, they were effectively were there for the, the coldest and rainiest season of the year. And I, I suspect Arthur was not well during that time, which I'm sure didn't help matters at all. Catherine did still have people she knew with her, but I think it would have been quite an isolating time for her and a time of quite high pressure for Arthur. I don't envision, and it is only an, an image because we don't know, we don't have many, we don't have any accounts of it, but I do not envisage it was five months of wedded bliss. I suspect the awkwardness continued. I suspect it was hard on both of them. And I don't imagine Catherine looked back on that time with great fondness. Is there much information about their lives at Ludlow Castle? No, and none. There's none really with um, with once Catherine is there. We can speculate a little bit. There's um, as many people will know, Catherine's symbol um was was the pomegranate, which symbols symbolised her parents' conquest of Granada, and um, a lot of churches near the Welsh border seem to have started erecting pomegranate symbols alongside Arthur's. Um, into their architecture, which may suggest they were on the verge of a big tour of Wales, um, which kind of makes sense. They were Prince and Princess of Wales and they were in that neck of the woods. But their actual time together, we know very little of. We know a little bit more about Arthur's time and routines and, and the people that were with him before Catherine comes along. But we know almost nothing of the time they spent together in Ludlow. Can you tell us more about Arthur's final illness? Uh, there's not a lot that we know. Um, there's a very obscure reference in the one account that talks about it, about the singular parts of him being driven inward. And it's very hard to know what that means. Uh, it could be, um, many have, many believe it's, it's a reference to the sexual organs, and it could be referring to um, testicular cancer, which is possible, although I, I think we hardly have the evidence based on that to know that. Um, there are other beliefs that it could be some form of consumption and of course many believe that it could have been the sweating sickness although there doesn't seem to be much evidence of an outbreak of the, of the sweating sickness uh, around that time what's quite frustrating about the way people view Arthur's death is that more often than not I believe people attempted to try and understand Arthur's death through the prism of what they already have decided about the consummation of Arthur and Catherine's marriage so those uh, that want to believe the marriage was not consummated, tend to believe that Arthur just had this illness, it had been ongoing, it was long term, and then he died. Those that want to believe that Arthur was actually healthy, and robust, and probably would have consummated his marriage, tend to believe there must have been some outbreak of plague uh, that scuppered him out of the blue. I think the evidence, unfortunately, doesn't allow for, for either such a tight interpretation. I think there's probably some combination of some local of some local illness in and around Ludlow at that time, and Arthur having some underlying vulnerability that we can't be too specific about. That unfortunately meant he died when others did not. And now a word from our sponsor. Where was Arthur buried? Arthur um, was buried at Worcester Cathedral. He um, he was living. He died at Ludlow Castle, and probably at his own request. We're, we're about ninety percent sure that his heart was buried at Ludlow, which has probably been the closest thing he ever had to a home. But then Arthur, first and foremost, um, even more so in a way than being Prince of Wales and heir to the throne, 
was a, a regional magna, a regional lord. And as many listeners will know, the way that a great medieval lord was buried was that they would be processed throughout their dominion. So everyone had the opportunity to come and pay their respects. And of course, people were, were keen to do that because Arthur's final largesse, his gifts would be distributed as, as he went. So the, by burying him at Worcester, which had some royal pedigree because King John, um, not a great king, but he had been buried there. So there was some royal pedigree and it gave Arthur the opportunity to make his final journey through his dominion. And Worcester... I'm American, so bear with me. That's of the one that's spelled W-O-R-C-E-S-T-E-R. And where is Worcester in relation to either Winchester or London? It's about, um, it's probably about 120 miles from London. It's quite, it's relatively close to uh, the Welsh border. It's, I, I suppose you'd probably call it, you'd call it a, a West Midlands part of England and it's it's near it's near Arthur's power base and near where Arthur spent the vast majority of his life. What was the impact of Arthur's death? Arthur's death had a huge impact in the years following his sad demise because Henry VII, his father, Elizabeth of York, his mother, are devastated by his death. And there's a very detailed contemporary account of their, their grief. And they're mourning. And they're, of course, mourning two things. They are mourning their son. And it's very clear, the raw emotion of what they're doing, it is very clear that they're mourning their son for the sake of having lost a son. But they're also mourning the fact they're now in dynastic crisis because the Tudor dynasty um, now hangs by the thread of one son. Sadly, we're still talking about an age where people didn't really think a woman could rule. If they had Elizabeth of York, would probably be queen in, in, in her own right. So as far as they're concerned, they've got one son left and they comfort themselves uh, and they hold themselves together by focusing on the future. And Elizabeth of York makes the offer to her husband, let's have another child. We're both still young enough to do so. Elizabeth knew what sacrifice she was making when she said that because she'd had terrible pregnancies. She'd been very ill. And it's quite likely that after her last pregnancy, which was about um, four or five years before, they'd made a deliberate decision. Uh, not for the Queen not to be uh, pregnant again because of the toilet took on her health. So she knew the sacrifice she was making. But they get pregnant. Um, uh, Elizabeth gets pregnant. She takes the baby to term, but sadly she dies uh, in complications related to childbirth. And the poor child uh, lives for just four days. So the immediate ramifications are, are quite extreme after Arthur's death because it, it basically leads to the scenario that causes the death of his mother. Henry VII, having lost his son, having lost his wife and best friend, because there's no doubt to me that that's what Henry VII and Elizabeth of York were. At around about the same time, Henry lost one of his crucial counsellors, Reginald Bray. From there onwards, there is no one to tamper the excesses of Henry VII's nature. He was a good king, he was a ruthless king, and he was an organised king. And he'd helped bring England the order it needed. But of course, we all know that too much order without somebody checking you leads to tyranny. And the last few years of Henry VII's reign can only be described as tyranny. And in, in many senses, that's what has ruined Henry VII's reputation throughout history. And all of this can, in one way or another, be linked to Arthur's death. And hadn't Elizabeth of York and Henry VII lost a, another male child as well? They had. They'd lost um, 
they'd, they'd lost a daughter and they uh, a daughter called Elizabeth and they had lost a son called Edmund. Edmund was very small when he died, which is not to suggest that in any way makes it easier uh, because there's plenty. We, we tend to assume with people of that era, because child fatality was so high, we tend to assume that it was somehow easier on the parents and that they got over it more easily because it was so common. The evidence does not suggest that in the slightest. The way that parents mourned and honoured the memories of children that even just lived for a very small amount of time um, for the rest of for the rest of the parents' life suggests that their grief was very real and very raw. So yes, for Elizabeth and for Henry, this was the third child that they had lost. And of course, this was the child that they had known and loved for nearly 16 years. Yes, he was their oldest, right? He was their oldest. He was their firstborn. He was a boy. So from a dynastic point of view, it was doubly significant to lose a boy. And they'd invested in him. Everything about his life um, was about his preparation for kingship. And the thoroughness that they had put into that preparation is unbelievable. So although he followed a very similar pattern to his uncle, Edward V, eldest son of Edward IV, in terms of going to Ludlow, setting up rule, it was far more organised and far more methodical than Edward's upbringing had been. They had painstakingly thought through every detail so that every person around him represented a different region of the country, represented a different shade of interest in terms of faction and in terms of heritage, so that Arthur could step in to this ready-made kingship which could unite the whole of England. All of that was gone. All of that was gone with the death of a boy. What indications do we have of the sort of king that Arthur could have been? It's the question everyone wants to know and to an extent the evidence by, by nature of it is limited because it's a hypothetical situation but I think there is more I think we can make some intelligent speculations about it and um, as many Tudor lovers will know because the last few years of Henry VII's reign had been so grim in terms of the strictness and harshness of his rules and regulations. When Henry VIII came in, this this sort of heir to the House of York, Henry VIII is very much physically um, and personality-wise the, the, um, the embodiment of his grandfather, the popular Yorkist king, Edward IV. Henry VIII has to come in and throw off all those negative structures and stringent rules that his father had so enforced. And... Um, almost reinstates a more medieval approach to kingship where the old blood of the land come back in and get their voice around the table and get given all the good jobs. It feels just like the good old medieval chivalrous England again, you know, let's let's have lots of joust, let's go to war with the French. Um, but the truth is that actually leads to quite a chaotic, a chaotic decade of government in Henry VIII's first year. And it isn't really later until Cardinal Wolsey, who's the, who's the first of Henry VIII's great ministers, comes to really grasp control of it all, that we start to see a bit more a bit more stability. With Arthur, I don't think you'd have that lost decade. I think partly because Henry VII wouldn't have probably descended into such tyranny, so Arthur wouldn't have had to have reversed that, um, that very negative perception of the, of the, of the crown. And partly because Arthur was probably being schooled much more in that model of kingship. Henry VII had created a more bureaucratic, you can debate this now, but I still think it's true, had created a more bureaucratic, more administrative-centric uh, monarchy, which is a very, very efficient machine uh, for governing England. And I think Arthur would have harnessed that much better. And I think in the first two decades, we would have seen a more organised, more methodical and more efficient government. But I think it would have been pretty ruthless People tend to assume that Arthur would have been less ruthless than Henry VIII. 
there's nothing really to suggest that that's true. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us today about Arthur Tudor. Is there anything else that you want us to know about him or maybe an anecdote from his life that you wanted to share with us? It's not so much an anecdote because sadly we don't get the we don't get those colorful stories with Arthur. You know, he never lives to become an old man and shares stories of his youth with anybody. But there's probably two things I'd like to just leave people with. One, which I think are both reassuring. The word that has really kept coming back to me as I've thought about Arthur's life as I was reading, and of course this is a subjective interpretation, but we all make them when you write about people, you can't not. I think Arthur's a very determined young man. I don't think life was ever easy. I think he was given challenging jobs to do at a young age. And at times, I don't think his health was on his side. But you always see a determination to keep going. And I think that's both impressive and inspiring and something we can all take from Arthur's life. The other thing I, I wanted to leave people with is as, as in a, to, to give a note of reassurance, really, is that Arthur often comes to us as a very isolated and lonely figure very far from his family. And that is true. And to an extent, he was isolated. But the evidence suggests that from about the age of 10, Arthur had a decent, perhaps sometimes quite fun and sometimes quite close group of friends around him. And I found that personally touching to know that whatever else he went through, however short his life was, there were people that Arthur was close to and could call, call friends. And he made a very lasting impression on them, which I don't believe they ever forgot. Again, thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. Could you remind us of your book's title and also where we can get it and when it's released? Yes. So uh, my book is called Arthur, Prince of Wales, Henry VIII's Lost Brother. It's being released in the UK uh, at the very end of May and released in the US in August. It's available through all the normal places you could buy. You can either buy direct from Pedersen or the publisher, or it's available on um, Amazon, certainly in the UK. It's available Waterstones, WH Smiths, uh, all those good places. And can we pre-order it? You could pre-order it now. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me today. And again, everyone, this is Gareth Streeter talking to us about Arthur Tudor. And that concludes this episode of the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you love the show and would like to show your support, go ahead and follow us on social media. You'll find us at Tudor's Dynasty. Also, you can leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Or you can become a patron over on Patreon. You can find all that information in the show notes. A special thank you to my newest patrons, Kathleen F., and Bandit Queen. Thank you so much for your support and all of the support of my existing patrons as well. Until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.